everyone. I'm your host, Lacey Cruz, and this is Through the Fire, an NPBC podcast. On this episode, we're going to continue our study through Hebrews, going specifically through chapters 8 to 10. Without further ado, let's jump in. We're still in this overarching section called the High Priesthood of Jesus that goes from chapter 4, verse 14 to chapter 10, verse 18. So we're going to finish up this big section here, but we have a couple subsections to go before we get there. The first subsection is Jesus, high priest of a better covenant, which is chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. Let's read that together. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old one. The covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So verse 1, this is the main point of the letter to remind the readers of Jesus' role as high priest for us. It tells Jesus brought full forgiveness of sins, shown by him sitting, which says that it's done, and at the right hand of the Father, which is the seat of power. Verse 2 says Jesus is in the true tent, a.k.a. the tabernacle. The tabernacle was where God's presence was on earth, but the true tent is God's full presence in heaven. Verse 3 says that every priest had to offer sacrifices, but Jesus offered himself as the final sacrifice. Verse 4, earthly priests had to be Levitical priests with lineage connecting them to Aaron, Moses' brother, which Jesus didn't have. Verse 5 talks about the tabernacle. As with many things on earth, including marriage, it is a shadow of a heavenly thing. Verses 6 and 7 says Jesus' new covenant is better than the old because it is the final one and has better promises. And then verses 8 to 12 quotes Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, 
and shows God blaming sinful humanity for the failure of the first covenant. The new covenant has a transformation of hearts and minds so all know him. And then verse 13, the last verse, says that the new covenant makes the old one obsolete. Which this is not saying that the Old Testament isn't important, but it's saying that the old covenant isn't what we follow anymore. Studying the old covenant shows us how much we need the new covenant. And it can still teach us more about who God is. So it's still very important to read the Old Testament and read about this old covenant. The next subsection we're going to look at is called the earthly holy place. And it's chapter 9, verses 1 to 10. It says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, an Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Okay, I know that sounds super confusing and we're like, why is this important? What is this talking about? This section explains the Old Testament tabernacle, its furnishings, and its worship practices. So this is kind of going backwards and talking about the Old Testament and the Old Covenant within it before we can go forward and see how Jesus is different and see how Jesus fulfills all of these things. So verse 2 describes the first section of the tabernacle, the holy place. Verses 3 to 5 describes the second section of the tabernacle, the most holy place, a.k.a. the holy of holies. The golden altar was actually right outside the holy of holies, but the incense filled the holy of holies, so that's why it's listed in this section. The Ark of the Covenant was a large special box or chest in which the tablets of the Ten Commandments were held. It was not allowed to be touched by human hands, so two wooden poles were attached, and that's how it was moved. The mercy seat was on top of the ark, and the golden cherubim were on the mercy seat, wings outstretched and looking downward in awe and reverence. This is where the Spirit of God dwelt. The author of Hebrews adds that the ark also held a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded. That isn't usually found elsewhere, but those are important things in the Old Testament, important items. Verse 6 talks about Levitical priests going into the holy place for their daily duties, which was changing the lamp oil, changing the bread of the presence, starting the incense fire, and to offer daily offerings. Verse 7 
talks about the most holy place and that only the high priest could go into it and he could only do so once a year on the day of atonement. He sprinkled blood on the mercy seat for his sins and the sins of the people. It was debated in Judaism where, whether this was for the intentional or the unintentional sins of the people. The law distinguishes a difference between the two types in Leviticus 4, um, but that's not necessarily what we're dealing with in this passage. That's just kind of a side note. Verses 8 to 10 says that because this system existed, the people could not speak to God on their own. And the system does not bring inner sanctification for the worshiper. The next subsection is redemption through the blood of Christ, which is chapter 9, verses 11 to 28. Let's read that. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is still alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have to had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So this section compares Jesus' new covenant to the old that was just explained. Verses 11 to 14 says that Christ became our high priest, giving a sacrifice of his own blood instead of animal blood, which justifies and sanctifies us. Verses 15 to 22 describes Jesus as the mediator of the new covenant and paying the price, which was death, 
that was required to establish the covenant so we could receive the promised eternal inheritance. It also talks about blood, and that blood was always required for purification and the forgiveness of sins. Verses 23 to 28 says that Christ appears in God's presence on our behalf, and he only had to suffer once because of his perfection and his role as our high priest. The first time he came, it was to, quote, put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The second time he'll come, it will be to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Our last subsection in this overarching section goes through chapter 10, verses 1 to 18, and it's described as Christ's sacrifice once for all. Let's look at that together. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifice that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible with the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the blood of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. For there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So this section, in contrast to the daily and annual sacrifices done by the Levitical priests in the Old Covenant, Jesus' sacrifice only needed to be done once, and it was for everyone. Verses 1-4 to four talk about the Old Covenant not being able to justify or sanctify anyone. Otherwise, the sacrifices would stop sooner or later. Because if it's sanctifying and justifying people at some point, they wouldn't sin anymore, so then the sacrifices would no longer be needed. Verses 5 to 10 quotes Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8, which is about the Davidic Messiah. God didn't want the performance of sacrificial rituals, but changed hearts and minds so he fulfilled the old system to bring in the new. Verses 11 to 14 talks about Old Testament priest 
making daily sacrifices that couldn't take away sins. While Jesus gave himself as sacrifice once so all could be perfected. Verses 15 to 18, God's people can do his will because his law is written on their hearts and minds. It's an eternal covenant. And it also quotes Jeremiah 31, verses 33 to 34 again. So now we're on the third big overarching section, which is call to faith and endurance. This goes all the way from chapter 10, verse 19 to chapter 12, verse 29. Again, there are a couple subsections underneath here. The first subsection is the full assurance of faith, which is chapter 10, verse 19 to 39. And even underneath that, there are more subsections, but we're going to go through those as we go through the rest of chapter 10. So let's just read chapter 10, verse 19 to 39. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance." so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not delay. The my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So verses 19 to 25 talk about an exhortation to draw near. He's exhorting his readers. Verses 19 to 22 says, because Jesus is our great high priest and his sacrifice gives us access to God, believers should enter into God's presence with a cleansed and believing heart. When it says bodies washed, it's most likely talking about baptism here. Verses 23 to 25 tells us to embrace the teachings concerning Christ and his work because of his character. The teachings produce hope 
and he is faithful. Then verses 26 to 39 give some warnings about shrinking back. The author warns of the impending judgment upon those who willingly reject the faith, and he states his purpose in giving this warning, which is to exhort the readers in their faith, because he knows that they have that faith based on their past perseverance, their fruit. Verses 26 to 27 is not talking about believers losing their salvation for their unrepentant sin, but about those who have the knowledge of Jesus but don't accept him, resulting in no life change and no spiritual fruit. Verses 28 to 29 talks about, In the law, those who blaspheme God receive the death penalty. In contrast, those who are seen as a Christian but renounced Christ will have a much worse punishment because he is the Son of the living God. When it says, By which he was sanctified, It's not thought to be actual Christians, but those who people believe are Christians, literally set apart. Their life doesn't reflect this, though. Again, no spiritual fruit there. Verses 30 to 31 quotes Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 35 to 36, and it portrays God as the heavenly and perfect judge. Verses 32 to 34, the author reminds the readers of how they've endured through suffering. Verses 35 to 36, the author encourages their confidence in Jesus' sacrifice for us and their endurance. Verses 37 to 39 quotes Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, and encourages perseverance. The wait for the end will be short. Faith is required from the people of God. Shrinking back invites God's displeasure. And the fact that shrinking back and faith are opposites. Since salvation comes by faith, those who shrink back aren't truly saved because they don't have faith in God. Next time, we're going to look at the last section of Hebrews, chapter 11 to chapter 13. I hope you guys will join us. Thank you guys so much for listening to our Hebrews study. You can find me on Instagram anytime at Building Lois Ministries, and that's Lois, L-O-I-S. If you need me, comments will get my attention much faster than DMs. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you guys next week.